A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 17. Back by popular demand, we are going to have yet another Bible episode. We love theology, but, you know, we actually also love the Bible. So we're going to do some Bible today. We're going to be talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But before we do that, I'm going to ask uh, Ben if you can share a little bit about Paul's worldview. How did Paul view the world, the universe, probably a better word, the cosmos? What was the way he pictured the cosmos? And why is this important when we read Paul? Yes, so... The key word we're trying to understand is um, apocalypticism. And I think that it is helpful to think of Paul's uh, perspective as an, as an apocalyptic perspective. So what does that mean? Apocalypse roughly means this idea of unveiling, that we live in a world, and when we look around, uh, there's, a, there's things that we, can't, that we can see, and there's things that we can't see. Uh, like I can see uh, the headlines in the news, but I can't necessarily see the, the hidden powers behind those headlines. And this is kind of the way that apocalypticism works in, in, in the Bible and in ancient literature as well. Um, the people of Israel have, they have this memory, maybe it's a mythical memory, well, not, I'm not sure, of a, of a high point when David and Solomon was king. And then they have this idea that it all went downhill and that, um, and that they were brought into exile in Babylon and and, and so on. And then they were able to return. And then they got invaded by Alexander the Great. And then there's a period in between the Old New Testament um, where they struggle with their new overlords. And there's a bit of a, you know, changing of the guard along the way. And eventually we arrive in the New Testament and they're under uh, Roman occupation. And so there's a lot of headlines involved here, but, but they're trying to find meaning behind these major world events. And, and so if you look at the book of Daniel, for instance, it's, it gives these bizarre sort of spiritual explanations for why certain powers rise and fall. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, and that's apocalypticism. This is the idea that behind the headlines, there are powers at work in the world and trying to, and trying to make sense of what we see in terms of what we don't see to, so to give an apocalyptic explanation is to sort of give an unveiling of what's behind the events that everybody can see, which, which provides it with a sense of meaning. So all that to say is that Paul is no different living in his time and place. He has an apocalyptic understanding of the events surrounding him. And he describes the life, the death, and, and the resurrection and his personal experience of Jesus of Nazareth uh, in apocalyptic terms, which presents many opportunities and challenges to us as readers today. Wow, I'm impressed. I really like that presentation. And without notes, I can tell. <laughs> I don't think I could have pulled it off. But uh, yeah, excellent. Exactly right. What I want to do now is uh, I'm going to quote from David Bentley Hart, a much beloved and hated uh, Eastern Orthodox theologian. He has this book titled Theological Territories. It's basically a collection of essays, really short. Some of them are literally three pages. And so I'm going to quote from chapter 24 there. It says, 
Paul's theology was rather different from what we think. I've been reading Paul for about 22 years now. And I remember when I first started reading the Bible, like I really thought that I was understanding things, right? Like I had all kinds of category errors reading and interpreting the Apostle Paul. Fast forward 22 years now, it's just amazing to see what happens when you read Paul in light of ap apocalyptic, what you just mentioned. It just, it's like reading it for the first time, literally. So this is what he's asked. To me, at the far end of my labors, and you know, the guy actually translated the whole New Testament, the picture looks very different. At least if I were asked to summarize Paul's actual teachings, relying only on the Greek of his letters, I think I would tend to identify his principal point of emphasis, not as original guilt and imputed righteousness, in neither of which he believed, but as the overthrow of bad angels. So <laughs> there it is. What is Paul's gospel? Ultimately, eschatologically, it culminates in the overthrow of bad angels. There you have it. That's Paul's gospel originally. I mean, we don't have to exactly uh, preach or present the gospel like that today, but that's how he did it. Um, so a little bit more specifically. In the story of salvation, nothing less than the entire cosmos is at stake. And the great drama at the heart of that story is one, one of invasion, con conquest, spoliation, and triumph. For Paul, the cosmos has been made subject to death, to whom we have been enslaved by our sin and by the malign governance of angelic or daemonian agencies, reigning over the earth from the heavens above and holding spirits in thrall below the earth. These agencies, these archons, these angelic beings whom Paul calls thrones, powers, dominations, and spiritual forces of evil in the high places are the gods of the nations, perhaps even the angel of the Lord who rules over Israel. So the letter of Galatians, hence, is one of their number. They may be fallen in some sense or mutinous or merely deficient caretakers of the world. But whatever the case, they stand intractably between us and God. Yet Christ has conquered them all. In descending to the realm of the dead, Hades, and, and ascending again through the heavens, Christ has conquered all the powers below and above that separate us from the love of God and has borne them away captive in a kind of triumphal procession. All that remains to happen is the consummation of the present cosmic age. Christ will appear again now in his full glory as universal conqueror, having subordinated all the cosmic powers to himself, literally having properly ordered them under himself. And then at the last, will hand over the whole of this reclaimed empire to the father, then the cosmos will be ruled no longer through wicked or incompetent spiritual intermediaries, but directly by God. Uh, a, a bit lengthy, the quote here, but I think this gives you an idea of how it is that people back in the day, and Paul was not unique in this way, a lot of people thought this way. 
Paul, the Essene communities. There were many different types of thinkers and Jewish movements at the time that had similar kinds of ideas. Any reactions to this, Ben? I think I agree with uh, his summary that the that Paul's message of the New Testament is about the overthrow of bad angels. Uh, if, if you want to put it really crudely, that's that's exactly kind of what it is. And this is, shouldn't be a surprise to us. If you've uh, studied the theology of the atonement, it's we we sh you'll know um, that there is no ecumenical council that established a doctrine of the atonement. We've got Christology, we've got the person of Christ, we've got the Trinitarian sort of formula. These were developed over a series of ecumenical councils, but there is no ecumenical council that said, this is the theory of the atonement. Or, uh, And so what we have instead is the earliest theories are fall under the category of Christus Victor atonement theories, where Christ defeating the powers so, of course, uh, that makes sense of Paul's language is that I think that the best way to understand his atonement as he understood it was defeating Christ, defeating the powers uh, where the powers are are described in apocalyptic terms uh, as angels. And then down the road, you get more of an Anselm, Anselm sort of approach to the atonement, which is more about. Well, which is more, let's say, the objective version of the atonement where. Christ somehow acts on God through the, through the atonement. And, uh, and then a little bit further, maybe I got the wrong name. Is it Abelard? I'm not sure. Um, you get more subjective approach to the atonement where Christ acts on us through the atonement. So really there's sort of three directions for the death of Christ to work towards mm -hmm. the powers, towards God or towards humans. And, but towards the powers is the first and the biblical version, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to be a stickler about it. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Great. Well, today we're going to look at a little paragraph in Second Corinthians chapter four. Before we go there, is there anything that you would like to tackle? Uh, okay. Well, so I I just googled and copy pasted um the Rudolf Bultmann quote that will just throw us into a tizzy here. <laughs> so. So we've just said that Paul's um, we've just said that Paul's gospel is that Christ defeats the bad angels. So Rudolf Bultmann wrote, "It is impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries, and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world's world of spirits and miracles." <laughs> yes. Well, can I say something here? Yeah. So this is a very famous quote, and I know the Baldman fans are quickly to defend him because I think oftentimes people misunderstand the quote. So they'll read this and, and they'll say that, see, Baldman is saying not only that we should not believe that we can no longer believe in the world of spirits and miracles. Rudolf Baldman was fully aware that a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians are not very... Uh, biblically literate, and they're not necessarily up to date on science and technology and whatnot. And a lot of people, in fact, do believe, well, at least they believe they do believe in this spiritual world of miracles and angels and demons and whatnot. So he's not saying that people cannot believe or that people do not believe. I think what he is saying is that even the people that believe today, they cannot and they will never believe 
in the same way in which, for example, Paul believed in this world. Today, you can still have this belief in the spiritual world, workings, powers, and whatnot, but because of our context, which is a context that is fully secularized in many places, definitely where you and I live, we're really going against the grain. And there is always a, a large element of doubt mixed, to, mixed with that faith, I think. So yes, we could still believe, but no, we're never gonna be able to believe in the same way that, for example, people believe back in the day as their default uh, way of thinking because of the way they were brought up in the culture and thought of the day. Yeah, okay. Good. So uh, maybe before we get to Second Corinthians, there's a couple more things we wanted to mention. First of all, uh, there is a couple of books we could recommend if you want to get a sense for what apocalypticism means for Paul and understanding Paul. The first one is one I haven't read, but you've read um, by John Barclay called Paul and the Power of Grace. That's a, that's a shorter version of his Paul and the Gift. Is that right? Yeah. A bit, a bit more updates. Okay. Mm -hmm. The second one is David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament sets the context for this uh, apocalypticism as well. And my favorite is um, Albert Schweitzer's book, which I consider to be a masterpiece, which is called uh, The Mysticism of Paul the Apostle. And, and uh, once you read that book, and once you just let Paul be Paul, mm -hmm. you just realize that Paul is, is on fire. He's, he's just, he's really uh, engaging deeply and passionately with his experience of, of Christ uh, in the world in which he actually lives, which is, uh, which is this world of apocalypticism. Mm -hmm. And so instead of trying to say to Paul, Paul, you need to explain things from my modern Western perspective to me, like just let Paul use the words he knows how to use and, and mm -hmm. just, and see the power at work in the man because how else would we ever see that power at work except in the language that he had available to him at the time? That's the only way we would ever, we could ever hear him speak about these things. So it's a real, it really, it really takes away um, a lot of obstacles when you just let Paul be apocalyptic without mm -hmm. saying to yourself, Oh, I need to be apocalyptic too, because it's too late for that. We can't really be apocalyptic in the way that Paul was. Mm. We have to, we have to develop yeah. our own apocalypticism and it'll be, it'll look completely different mm -hmm. given what we know about the powers at work in the world right now. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Okay. So the second sort of pet peeve that you and I both have is that every couple of days we log on to Twitter where we get most of our theology, honestly, <laughs> from books and from Twitter. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. uh, and there's always like, as the young people say, a hot take where it goes something like this, like, well, you know what? I think Jesus is all I need. I don't really need Paul. Paul has corrupted Christianity, has corrupted our message. We need to get back to Jesus. So mm -hmm. when you hear, when you see that, and I usually forward it to you, how do you react? What's your thoughts on this Paul versus Jesus dilemma? Yeah. Well, I mean, I just see that and I say, well, I don't know. This here's somebody who has not truly taken the time to study and read Paul. And a lot of people, unfortunately, they don't even realize again that Paul's writings came first, then the gospels, 
that is significant that is very significant and yeah i mean obviously i disagree i disagree obviously paul is not trying to be uh, a double of jesus he's trying to be his own person in his own context but he's absolutely faithful to the message of jesus he's just taking it to a new audience and so he's doing new things he's working on the other side of the resurrection and that changes everything for him yes he never met the earthly jesus but uh, he's an apostle of the risen jesus and that's the gospel that he proclaims which i would say it's it's fully compatible with what we see in the early ministry of jesus but of course there are differences developments uh, but yeah there's definitely a lot of continuity yeah i would say that if you really want to get to jesus Paul, more than any other New Testament writer, shows you how to have unmediated access to the risen Christ in your own spiritual and moral experience. So to say, oh, I just want Jesus, not Paul. Um, like, do you want to read uh, about Jesus at second hand? Is that what you really want? Like, do you want to have Jesus Christ mediated to you through Peter and his successors and through the laying on of hands through mm -hmm. the episcopal <laughs> a succession a apostolic succession or do you want someone like paul who says hey here's how i have access to jesus in real life right now and if you imitate me as i imitate christ you can pretty much do the same thing there's no way to get closer to jesus than just to follow in paul's footsteps and eventually paul disappears and you mm -hmm. are actually alongside jesus in experience mm -hmm. Whereas, yeah, and so Paul is really not an obstacle to direct access to Jesus. On the contrary, he's sort of, he's, he's, he's the pioneer in the New Testament that shows us how this actually works. Mm -hmm. uh, and the gospel writers in no way give us a clearer picture of Christ than Paul does uh, for the purposes of the Christian life. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. I, I cannot agree more. <laughs> Some people tend to think of the Gospels as having been written as a correction of Paul. Some other people think of the Gospels as having been written as not a correction, but uh, a supplemental instruction. There's various ways to do this, but at the end of the day, I, I will also stake my position as saying that Paul gives us the best way forward best way forward we can still use the gospels but paul is the way that's my position yeah right. i i i don't know i feel quite strongly about this too i think we're well we're, we're totally on the same page about this but i mean the early church they gathered in jerusalem and they and they got peter and john to tell them stories about jesus right but that can only take you so far eventually you have to eventually you have to um interact with the risen christ yourself mm -hmm. so we like the faith is not saved by somebody writing down the stories of peter and john and and we just read that like there's value in that of course but uh i think i'm going to kierkegaard's concept of contemporaneity with christ if, mm -hmm. if, if christianity is true there's there's a sense in which the people who walked literally walked alongside Jesus do not have an advantage over those of us who live today in terms of knowing about Christ and his purposes. And so Paul is the first person 
who to like leave behind any decent writing about it to prove this concept of contemporaneity with Christ, to prove that he, he was at no disadvantage for failing to actually have walked alongside Jesus during his ministry in Israel. So, so, so he's the champion for us to do this, exactly the same thing today. There's no, there's no difference. And, and I think this is why the apocalypticism is so important. Um, it's like, we don't actually have to adopt his apocalypticism to, to, to experience what Paul experienced. It, it, it will come out in our own language today. Great. Excellent. I think we have everything that we need in order to tackle the text now. So let's go there. Okay. Uh, dust off your Bibles, everyone. <laughs> Mine literally had dust on it uh, as we prepared for this. <laughs> ben is a digital Bible guy. I, I like print Bibles. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Before I read, so there are two, well, as they are in the Bible, there are two letters to the Corinthians, right? In this second letter, uh, Paul has had some conflict with the Corinthians. And I'll just summarize what we need to know here. So he had told them that he was going to go visit them. And then he was planning to go to Jerusalem, I believe. But then there was a change of plans and he didn't do that. And then the Corinthians were kind of mad and just thinking, what's going on with the apostle here? And so Paul reassures them that there was a change of plans with good reason. And that ultimately he didn't want to go there because... He just didn't want to be discouraged or seeing their spiritual condition, basically. <laughs> and so he writes this letter where he explains his motives. He defends his ministry and he really paves the way so that he can visit them and continue his, his work with them. Uh, okay, so here we go. Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter four. I'm reading from the new, from the revised English Bible. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Since God in his mercy has given us this ministry, talking about the ministry of the new covenant, we never lose heart. We have renounced the deeds that people hide for very shame. We do not practice cunning or distort the word of God. It is by declaring the truth openly that we recommend ourselves to the conscience of our fellow man in the sight of God. If our gospel is veiled at all, it is veiled only for those on the way to destruction. Their unbelieving minds are so blinded by the God of this passing age that the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, cannot dawn upon them and bring them light. It is not ourselves that we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord in ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For the God who said, out of darkness, light shall shine, has caused his light to shine in our hearts. The light, which is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have only earthenware jars to hold this treasure and this proves that such transcendent power does not come from us. It is God's alone. Okay. Yeah, I've been, I've been reading First and Second Corinthians for a while. And I really believe they have become my favorite Pauline epistles. I probably read Romans way too much and I'm kind of tired of Romans. So I really like 
first and second Corinthians because he deals with so many problems, right? Especially in first Corinthians. There's so many issues with the Christians and the church and he's having to help them. Uh, but here he talks about the ministry of the gospel. He says in verse three, if our gospel is veiled at all, it is veiled only for those on the way to destruction. Their unbelieving minds are so blinded by the God of this passing age that the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, cannot dawn upon them and bring them light. Okay, what, what do we do with that? Can we just call everyone who disagrees with us or who's not a believer and say that they're deceived by Satan? Uh, what should we do with this text? Okay, well, if we want to have a modern apocalypticism, we've got to take the headlines, if you know what I mean, the news that we see around us, which is that, which is roughly like, why do people do what they do? And when it seems contrary to the good news of Jesus, and we've got to, we've got to identify the powers involved. So Paul identifies the powers here as the God of this world. And we'll just take that as bad angels. Um, mm -hmm. But right now, uh, it's almost a truism, and everybody almost agrees that we are all being corrupted on a regular basis through the artificial intelligence mm -hmm. tuned towards making money of mm -hmm. our social media platforms. Mm -hmm. And that it literally is blinding us to what's happening in the world and to what to expect from one another and increasing partisan polarization and mm. disinformation and mm. paranoia. Yeah and so on. So why, like we could ask ourselves, why can't we have a more compassionate politics towards one another? Why can't we hear when people are suffering and believe that they're telling us the truth? Mm -hmm. Why can't we trust those with the expertise to heal us when, they, when they're most needed? And like, we can just say that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers and at the moment, like this seems like the competition for the God of this world seems to go between Facebook and Twitter. It's hard to say, <laughs> but maybe there's, maybe there's something else in the mix that I'm not sure of, but, but this blinding effect on behalf of powers that none, no one of us really controls, although some of us have more influence than others mm -hmm. is real and present. And, uh, and it's bearing it's bearing the wrong kind of fruit in the world. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I really like how you're helping us find alternative language for more or less the same issue here. Now, let's stick a little bit closer to the text here. So, a lot of really, really conservative Christians will say, well, the reason they don't believe in Jesus, the reason they don't have faith is because they're deceived by Satan. It's as simple as that. And therefore, every single person who does not believe in Jesus Christ, they're deceived by Satan. And they're of the devil or whatever. That's, that's going to be their take. Of course, uh, we disagree. But uh, we can definitely see how they can use this and verses like it to substantiate their claims. Uh, when I was reading this, I was thinking along the lines of, okay, well, if you wanna really 
talk about people being under the influence of Satan, maybe we could say something along the line. Well, everyone who's perpetuating injustice, right? Everyone who's harming people, they are influenced by Satan. To me, that's a lot better than just saying, oh, people, they don't believe in Jesus, then they're of the devil. And I think in first, second, third John, you see ideas kind of like that. Of course, you still have to use those very carefully. But I mean, this idea that if people don't believe in Jesus, then they're literally blinded by Satan. Okay, what do we want to say to people that maybe view things that way? Well, what I want to say is that in the gospel accounts themselves, uh, everybody thinks that God is on their side. Mm-hmm. So following God is guess is pretty much what everybody is, is doing and thinks that they're doing. The question is, who is actually following Satan? Even though they think they're following God. So really the people who are most vulnerable here aren't sort of the atheists and the, or whatever. It's the, it's the people who see themselves as God followers who are at the most risk of being confused here. Mm -hmm. And in our modern context, especially, especially in the United States, Canada has a, has a lower um, level of influence for, for evangelicals, I'd say. Uh, It's the, it's the good Christian people who are self-described good Christian people who, who really need to ask themselves, okay, so I think I'm following God, but who am I really following? Mm. And in verse four here, we talk about, um, yeah, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the idea is that if you think you're following God, uh, if you think you're following the God of Jesus, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, like the only way to know is to is to test your following against 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 that of Jesus Christ, to test your good news against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, to look and so to get very specific, the mm-hmm. the essential identifier of jesus christ is his death his obedience to his father unto death and that's why we keep on going back to a theology of the cross that's why paul is always about proclaiming christ crucified because if the jesus you're worshiping uh can be somehow separated from his death or if his death can be somehow explained a way to neutralize and contain it and to contain its implications for you then you may be in this blinded by the God of this world situation. Um, a sober look at the cross is sort of the ongoing work of Christian, of a Christian theologian, of a, of a, of pastors as they try to help people uh, follow the Christian faith. And as we all sort of examine um, the good news as it, at its ugliest, it's, it's really at this ugly location of the cross that we can, that we can get a sense of whether we're in touch with the real thing or, or counterfeit. Mm. And, and it gets really, it gets really nasty. Cause um, I'm, I'm convinced that often if you have a very uh, okay, I'll name and shame here. So 
let's talk about the atonement theology of penal substitutionary atonement, mm -hmm. which basically says humans are sinful, mostly on the individual level. Sin requires punishment and death. God is able to not punish us by punishing Christ instead. So whatever I was going to be punished for, Christ has been punished in my place. So I'm no longer punished anymore. Uh, there's no more punishment for me. I'm forgiven through this sort of legal substitution. And I would say it's like pseudo legal because it's not clear that it is legal at all. Uh, the, yeah, the, it, that, that is a, a, a theology of the cross, allegedly. It says, here's how it works, but it does it in such a way that totally insulates us from the cross as a threat to ourselves. <laughs> the Jesus of the gospel says, like, take up your cross and follow me. Paul talks about wanting to know the power of Christ and to share in his sufferings um, or to share in a death like his. Yeah. So. So, I mean, this is, this is, this is another risk of being sort of self-destructive in your, in your faith as well. But um, if, if you have, like, I just think that penal substitutionary atonement as a theology of the cross is totally inadequate because it basically makes the cross uh, safe for us rather than dangerous. And, and as a form of the God of this world, blinding the minds of the unbelievers, they don't actually have to think about the cross anymore. So. Mm. Wow. It's a good challenge. Thank you. Great. Uh, the other thing that I was thinking about while I was reading this is just how Paul describes the gospel here. So he talks about the gospel as being about the glory, of, uh, the glory of Christ. So he talks about the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. First of all, I love that description. And I think that as Christians, we can definitely agree that Jesus Christ is glorious and that in the face of Christ, we see God. I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's poetic. I think it's beautiful and I love it. But while I was reading this, of course, I always keep my eye on 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul defines the gospel as the word of the cross or as Jesus crucified. Uh, so he says, Greeks look for wisdom. Jews want miracles but we preach Christ crucified, <laughs> right? So on the one hand, so there's this beautiful poetic way of talking about the gospel, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. On the other hand, there's this not terribly appealing way of talking about the gospel as the word of the cross. The gospel is being not the story of Jesus who died for us, which is true, but Jesus who was crucified, a shameful, horrible, ugly death. And just saying that that's the gospel. The gospel is the word of the cross. And so every time I read this, I think about that and I try to kind of put the two in my head and, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. <laughs> that's more or less what goes in my mind. How do I bring these two together? What do you think about that? <sighs> yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how to put this exactly. So let's bring it back to powers, I guess. 
the in first Corinthians, we got this idea that the the powers would not have crucified Christ if they had known mm-hmm. what it meant. Yeah. And I'm thinking back to another Soren Kierkegaard concept, which is um, the exalted Christ is also Christ in his abasement. Mm-hmm. So when we say the glory of God, and you sh- show up to a nice reformed uh, church and you sing your songs, think about the glory of God to God be the glory on and on it goes. It just makes me sick after a while, but <laughs> it's like, are you sure that you know what you mean when you're talking about glory? Because often in those circles, glory just means all powerful. Like God can do anything. He's sovereign. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. And so on. It's the second it's, person of the Trinity. Yeah. And so the mighty like give it a rest. The glory of God is ugly it's the cross of christ uh christ in his exaltation is christ in his abasement you don't get to just approach the exalted christ and say and just sort of have your association with this exalted person raise up your own status the exalted christ is the crucified christ so if you want to approach him you have to approach him at the bottom not not in his exaltation Mm -hmm. the the offense of the gospel is that the powers are constantly ranking us all in terms of our value and worth and success. And by the metric of the powers, angelic or, or artificial intelligence, either way, there's a spectrum there. <laughs> they, by the metrics of the powers, Jesus Christ comes out at the bottom because mm-hmm. he's crucified. Yeah. And it's not about the pain and the suffering. This is this is a over. This is a kind of a, something that comes from the penal substitutionary um, instincts. But uh, it was painful. But that's not the value. The the it was the, the idea is that it's shameful. Uh, that the death of Christ is the discrediting of Christ. Everybody thinks they're following God, mm-hmm. and when God does not save Jesus Christ, it looks very much like he was wrong about God the whole time. Mm-hmm. But the and but he but then the new testament doctrine of the resurrection is that god has exalted the crucified one and that we thought that jesus was abandoned by god because he was a fraud that's what we thought the disciples felt like um, they had been following a fraud in the aftermath of the death of christ they're totally um disoriented by his failure to be saved by god the failure to save himself and that this is the Christian faith it's like surprise, actually God was with this loser all along. <laughs> and, and what counts as a loser, according to the powers is completely wrong in the eyes of God. And so mm-hmm. the powers are defeated. This is how the defeat of the powers works. Uh, in Galatians, Paul says, the law says, cursed is everybody who's hung upon a tree. Yeah. Therefore, Jesus Christ is cursed by God. But, the, but that argument works the other way. Um, Jesus Christ was not cursed by God. He's exalted by God. And therefore, the law as a power is broken because it is wrong in this verdict. It's not a worthy representative of God in the world and God's evaluation of the world. So, so that's, I think I've gone a little bit too far from your question. I don't even remember what your question was. No, so. no, no, no. This is, this is really good. I was saying, how can we bring these two things together? On the one hand, this glorious description of the gospel as the gospel being the, the gospel about the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Sounds beautiful, poetic. Love it. 
doesn't mention the cross versus first Corinthians one, where he says, no, 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 no. The gospel is the word of the cross or the gospel is Jesus was crucified. And that's what we're going to preach. Uh, that's what I was saying. I think you put it really well together. And I think the issue is that, again, this goes back where we began with this episode. We read the Bible. We see a word. We just see the word cross. And I think a lot of us Protestants, we automatically are already thinking atonement, uh, penal substitution, or whatever it is that, that your mind defaults to. And that's what you think about. But that's not really how Paul thought of it. Again, the scandal was, the cross was a scandal. The cross was a source of shame. Like Paul, when he went to Corinth, he knew that a message featuring a crucified person would be ugly, unpopular, and just would be ridiculed by the philosophers, right? And the, the wise people of the day. So... Yeah, on the one hand, the gospel is glorious, Christ, the image of God, but it's also scandalous because it's it's ugly. It's the word of the cross. It's Jesus crucified. And so, I mean, Paul himself, I don't remember where, but in other letters, I have to look it up, he, he talks about how he glories, he boasts in the cross. Like I think in Galatians 6, he says that because of the cross, the world has been crucified to me. And I have been crucified to the world. Wow. It's very deep. Uh, so again, Paul has a fully integrated soteriology. And it's all about the cross. And, and the cross uh, has an effect on the entire cosmos. It has an entire effect on Paul himself, right? I'm crucified to the world. The world is crucified to me. I, I bear the marks, right? of being a follower of Jesus Christ and I rejoice in my sufferings. I mean, wow. Paul lived this dialectic here of glory and shame of the cross suffering. So I think we want to, when we want to say people will in a worship service, they'll pray or sing like, show us your glory, God. Um, and it may be a more Catholic or I'm not sure I'm ignorant about these things, but I think there's this idea of the be the beatific vision that we strive our whole life to see mm -hmm. the glory of God mm -hmm. and that we hope to enter into the glory of God. Mm -hmm. So I like, given the people I've read and the instincts I've developed, mm -hmm. I want to like, say that the beatific vision is available to us right now. Meditate on the cross of Christ. <laughs> mm -hmm. The cross of Christ is the beatific vision. You want mm -hmm. to see the glory of God, look to the mm -hmm. cross of Christ. And, mm -hmm. and the ugliness of it is only ugly because of how much we're invested in the powers that be at the moment. That when we look to the cross, we can't see what we consider to be glory, what we consider to be, because what we see is failure. But mm -hmm. to see it as failure is to be in the grip of the powers already. If you know, if you get what I mean. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, and I, I've said this on our podcast before. Uh, I, I like the, the idea of the vision of Isaiah in like Isaiah six or something like that, where in the, in the old Testament or Hebrew Bible, when people have a vision of God, they have this sense of like, what was me? I'm a 
person of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, that's the same effect that the cross should have on us is that when we approach Christ crucified uh, as the way to approach Christ in his exaltation, we, we get a revelation of our own selves and our own, um, the distance between our perspectives and the perspective of God. It's the distance between, between the crucified one as a failure and the crucified one as the one that God sets over all things as the image, as the very image of God. Um, mm-hmm. And we get the same sense of like, I'm surely going to die in the presence of this revelation of God because like that's actually literally what we're worried about is getting crucified ourselves. <laughs> so yeah. 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 So, so I, I don't know, like how do we get past that ugliness to the goodness? And that's the, cha- that's, that's the challenge. And I think I don't want to reflect on the pain of the cross uh, too much because I don't see the pain of Christ, the suffering of Christ as, as of great, as of any direct value. I see it as only instrumental. Like what's, what's of value is the obedience of Jesus to his father that put him in a situation where evil people would try to snuff out that light. Um, that's what that's so, but then behind that obedience is actually the light itself. Like, this love of God available in the world through the power of the spirit of Jesus was manifest in this person of Jesus that guided his, his, his interactions with everyone around him, including the powers of his day. Um, mm-hmm. And, and how the, the way that it, it, it is in contrast to the, to the powers that be um, will lead to conflict and, and it's this it's the it's a testament to the value to the goodness of god to the how jesus was swept up in the goodness of god that he was willing to obey to that point of having the powers sort of squash him completely um to their own to their own detriment and discrediting him yeah yeah great excellent meditation Okay, well, I was also thinking about the following, you know, earlier we talked about how, and this is never going to go away, but uh, hopefully people are going to get more and more educated about the blessed Apostle Paul little by little, and we're contributing (laughs) to that. And, you know, they won't say such silly things anymore. We're hoping Jesus, not Paul, and so forth. Uh, There is, you know, a little more substantive uh, trend where people are asking, I don't know, I don't know about this cross. I think we should be more about the resurrection because the resurrection is, is, is life-giving, literally. The resurrection, it's where it's at. Why do we need to pay attention to the cross? I mean, it's people are going to misuse the cross and it's going to get ugly. So it's just not really... Let's not go to the cross anymore. Let's go to resurrection and maybe the teachings of Jesus and the gospels. Okay, what, what what do you think about that trend? It's an old it's an old trend. Like that, 
Yeah, if the glory of God is present in the cross, and if it's a real true threat to us, we're going to do anything we can to contain it. Uh, we'll do anything we can to contain it. And I think that, and like I've already said, I think sometimes an atonement theory can be a tool to contain the glory of the cross as a threat mm. to our as a threat mm. to our uh, our lives as they normally are. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you can be even more explicit and just say, "Let's not talk about the cross." That's true. Um, but uh, but the, the idea of the resurrection is like the resurrection of who? Like the, gosp the gospel is like particularly, um, I'm thinking of Lazarus in the book of John. Yeah. So whatever you make of this, of this story, whatever you make of the book of John as historical or theological interpretation or whatever, we don't worship Lazarus, okay? God, the New Testament has this story about a man named Lazarus coming back from the dead. Like, well, so what? Who cares? That we don't worship that man and he probably died again later. So <laughs> we're not, we don't follow Lazarus. Why not? Because Lazarus was not exalted by God. Lazarus is not held up as the image of the glory of God. Mm -hmm. So we can't just be resuscitation Christians. Like there's no, there's no content or value in that. Um, it's the It's the cross that gives meaning to the resurrection and the resurrection, which gives meaning back to the cross. So without the resurrection, the cross is the discrediting of Jesus by the powers, okay? But um, but without but without the, the cross, the resurrection doesn't threaten the powers at all, if you get what I mean. Like, mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the cross by which the resurrection defeats the powers. <laughs> mm-hmm. They have to go together. We can't have the defeat of the powers without the cross and the resurrection. Um, the powers that the powers can persist without any threat to their authority if we just have one or the other. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sympathetic to people who have this view. Like it makes sense to me. I, I can see how if you say Jesus, not Paul because you know, Paul has been misused or certain quote unquote letters from Paul are used all the time to espouse nonsense. Of course, you're not gonna be into Paul <laughs> and you wanna get rid of Paul and see like, no, let's go with Jesus. Uh, in a similar fashion here, again, it's impossible. I don't think it can be done. I mean, people do it, I guess, but I think in doing so, uh, they're really, running into contradictions because the the gospel is the word of the cross we can say that maybe the cross is not the final word okay fine but we can bypass the cross or minimize the cross or move it out of the center i don't think we can do that but i understand i'm sympathetic towards the position Yeah, I guess the I guess the I guess what I want to say if I, to reattack this a little bit is that if we got the resurrection without the cross, all we have is like the so-called defeat of death, which is basically just the defeat of the undesirable aspects of our lives. Um, what the cross does is it doesn't just defeat the undesirables; it defeats the desirables as well. Like we actually desire the things that are defeated through the cross and resurrection together. We desire security. We desire power. Mm. We desire um, that others would be beneath us so that we can be lifted up. Um, these are the things we desire. 
And uh, there's nothing wrong with safety and well-being. And I guess the theological word people use is shalom. Like, I don't think we should we should be um, punishing ourselves just to stay sharp or whatever. Or I don't I don't believe in an aesthetic approach or asceticism, not aesthetic. I believe in aesthetics, just not asceticism. <laughs> but but the the cross sort of it yeah it's more than just death defeated it's all of our attempts to manipulate god are also defeated that's what's being defeated at the cross you can't be a god manipulator and follow jesus to the cross mm -hmm. yeah it, it can't be done and so that if that's that's the way salvation lies if if god is going to be good is good and god seeks good things for us we literally are our own worst enemies in this regard because because we can't release God to do what is what is actually best in our lives and in the world. Um, yeah, it's that's why this death comes first and the and the life comes second in a way. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things can come across as being just intellectual exercises and not having anything to do with our practical day-to-day -day living. But, you know, some of the truths of the gospel, especially this truth of crucifixion and resurrection, sometimes they're better understood by having certain life experiences than by just, you know, reading essays on atonement or even reading the New Testament and so forth. So I think there's always an element of experience leads to understanding leads to learning yes yeah so that's the last thing i want to say and uh i think the reason we want to move the cross out of the center of the gospel is because of suffering right what does the cross represent it represents suffering um I, i'm not disagreeing with anything that you said but i think the way the reason people don't want to think about the cross is because it represents, for us anyways, suffering. And But anyways, that's a topic for another day. Um, Let's talk about that experience then. So in verse 6, we've got um, something. I found that verse 6 reminded me of Romans 5.5. 5. He says, for it is the mm -hmm. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has mm -hmm. shone in our hearts to give us, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, and Romans 5, 5, which I, it's like one of the very, very few verses I do have memorized. It says, um, hope doesn't disappoint us because the love of God's been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul's Christian experience really mm -hmm. is about. Yeah. It's this idea that God is alien and other, and, and, and he experiences this alien love and light manifest in his, in his, in his heart. I mean, whatever that means, even the heart is a metaphor, right? But, um, but the love of God poured out into your heart by the Holy spirit, that is an experience of the kind of love that loves enemies and the experience of being loved by God. Um, those things don't come uh, naturally. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think in verse six here, 
Like, how can you see the glory of God in the crucified Christ? Very hard to do on your own because it actually is mostly ugliness at first glance. Mm-hmm. And so to, to begin to perceive the presence of God in the darkest corners of human possible experiences, that is, um, that's an experience unto itself. And, and I think that if you continue into verse seven and so on, he talks about this treasure in um, clay jars so that it may be clear that the extraordinary power belongs to God and not, does not come from us. He talks about being afflicted, crushed, perplexed, not, but not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, always caring in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible mm-hmm. in our bodies. So like the, the, the only way to get past the powers, like, how can I put this? Um, the Christian experience is the, is, reaches like at maximum clarity precisely where where the powers insist that god has failed you that's when you know the powers are wrong (laughs) because like when you're in a position where god is with you and the powers are kind of also with you it's sort of like well who's really behind this right (laughs) when they say when people say hashtag blessed on social media (laughs) like Mm -hmm. yeah well maybe that's just your white privilege that's blessing you Thanks, Satan. Like it's not, it's not, it's mm-hmm. not from God. It's from things you've stolen from others, or that others have stolen and given to you. Um, hashtag blessed. Yeah. Uh, it's really yeah. when it when it couldn't possibly be the powers that you're like, this is definitely God. That mm-hmm. is the source of this mm-hmm. this love and light in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. So obviously, Paul himself was an experiential theologian. QED. <laughs> No, uh, yeah. So the Apostle Paul, I mean, again, we're talking about someone who was vehemently against the early Jesus movement, right? He was not a fan at all. But he had this experience of the risen Jesus, and it made him question everything, literally, the entire cosmos. And and then he was never the same again. And uh, I know it's easy to... It's easy to dunk on the conservative, Lutheran, Calvinists, and so forth. But I mean, honestly, they make it, they make it easy. It's okay. Yeah, they do. But here's the thing: <laughs> like, I, I really do love aspects of Lutheran theology. I really do love aspects of Reformed theology. It just so happens to be that those aspects that I love of these theologies are where they, where I feel they're being genuinely Pauline. So there's even, I mean, I don't think you're going to call those theologies a treasure but or a jar or whatever. But even there, I mean, they really do make a big deal out of this idea that we need God's grace. We need God's help. You cannot save yourself. You cannot make yourself love Jesus. You cannot do any of these things we are really in need of divine assistance and i do love that and i think it's biblical and i think it's what paul experienced and i think they do legitimately make some good points about how uh the spiritual the the 
the Christian life uh, is formed or begins. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to call myself an Augustinian, but it really does make sense to me that we desperately need divine grace to be able to see these things, to be able to delight in these things. It's easy to intellectually talk about, you know, the New Testament, the cross, the gospel and whatnot. It's another thing altogether to, to give your heart to these things, to be, uh, to be won over to this crucified person and to sign up you know, for the side push and say, okay, I want to carry my cross too. So, yeah. Maybe to wrap it up, um, if we go to verse seven, we have these, we have this treasure in clay jars. So it may be clear that the extraordinary power belongs to God and not comes from us. Um, well, let's say that like the apocalypticism of Paul that we've been talking about, this ancient perspective, mm -hmm. that's the clay jar and his sort of experiential theology is the is the treasure and the reason people keep liking paul and they're always going to like paul doesn't matter what the haters say because people are going to taste and see for themselves mm -hmm. the same thing that paul tasted and saw mm -hmm. they're going to experience what paul experienced and they're mm -hmm. going to read paul and say aha here's somebody who understands me mm -hmm. and there's Excellent. there's no, nobody can ever take that away mm -hmm. um and once you realize that his apocalypticism is part of the clay jar. You stop thinking of Paul as an intellectual. You mm -hmm. stop thinking of him as a pastor doing a Roman series. Mm -hmm. Paul's not an intellectual. He doesn't have the worldview that we need. That's mm -hmm. the clay jar. Um, just see what's inside of it. And, and, and you can have that for yourself too. And anyway, I think Paul's relatively invincible as far as history goes because of this. Yeah. I think that's an excellent excellent way to wrap this up and i love it because we're using a metaphor from the text so good job <laughs> if a this biblical metaphor must be better than most so yeah. <laughs> if this were an essay i would give you good points <laughs> uh yeah absolutely 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 let us not confuse the treasure for the jar the treasure is christ jesus the jar for paul was his apocalyptic way of viewing and functioning in the world it's okay we have a different jar yeah thank you for listening to this episode of the experiential theology podcast we hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here you could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology